0: The Startup to Scale Up game plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm dedicated to helping technology startups and scale ups recruit high impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann.
1: I'm delighted to welcome uh, Christian, Christian Hernandez to today's episode. Uh, Christian has extensive operating experience in technology companies, developing And scaling products and and businesses internationally and he's the co-founder of white star capital so very warm welcome to you christian
0: thank you for having me on the show i appreciate it good to be here
1: you're most uh, most welcome christian so let's begin with you telling us just a little about your earlier career Uh, how and when did you start your journey into technology leadership
0: that's I mean I've been in technology all of my career. Um, I, I mean I, I'm a self-taught geek from an early age. Um, and while I got a degree in economics, I was I was still teaching myself HTML. This is back in 1995, building some of the first websites at school, and then ended up joining a technology company in uh, in the dot-com days, building business intelligence uh, software. So this is this is big data before big data got exciting, and. Uh, I mean, I I just got the bug for early-stage startups at that point. The company was 200 people when I joined. It grew to 3,000. We went public, had a 60 billion market cap, uh, lost uh, 72% of that in one day, but that's a different story. And there I was at 24, uh, leading a product team with 30 engineers and and, and just realizing that the hyperscale, the hypergrowth stage was my favorite, just seeing something go so fast and you had to do all sorts of different roles. But after after MicroStrategy, I um, I decided to go to business school and learn a bit more about how to manage other parts of the business. Unlike most of my classmates at that point, I wanted to stay in technology. Most of them were burnt out from the dot-com days, and as you can imagine, not a lot of people were hiring in tech in tech back then. And I, and I happened to be a non-U.S. citizen, so it was hard to get an H-1B visa. But I joined Microsoft as a summer intern and then came back full time in what at that point was the nascent smartphone business. Uh, we were about to launch the first-generation Windows Mobile smartphone. And my job was to go partner with Motorola, Samsung, uh, and others, and ship phones around the world. And really, Microsoft, I still believe, had everything going for it to have succeeded in uh, in launching this platform for, for smartphones, except for the fact they had a legacy business around selling enterprise software, which led to a conflict between whether Windows Mobile was a consumer offering or an enterprise offering. And in a way, the rest is history as it kind of lost that race. But I, um, I moved back to Europe with Microsoft to run uh, business development for the what's called the Embedded Group, all the software systems that get embedded into set-top boxes, phones, ATM machines across Southern Europe. And I was pretty happy in Paris for a year. Um, When Google called, uh, Google was setting up their mobile team in London. So very few people know this, but the initial product engineering hub for Google's mobile efforts was actually uh, in the UK. And from here and from California, we were building the first generation of Google Maps for Java, um, Google Search toolbars that we were pre-embedding in in Nokia phones, trying to get Google Search across as many devices possible. This is is years before the launch of, uh, of Android. So it was a natural extension to what I've done at Microsoft, but that then led me to a, a more of a, a product business type role where I was the liaison between something that was being baked in the labs by the engineers and finding a market for it and distribution for it. And uh, I actually loved my time at Google. At Google. I was there for, for three years and this small company in the Valley that was setting up a European outpost called Facebook called and asked whether I would run... The, Facebook has two businesses or had two businesses. They had the advertising business, which had a team of about 10 people on the ground in the UK. And they had the platform business, which is getting developers, media companies, gaming companies to build on top of Facebook and monetize by, by, in the case of games, through virtual currency. And I was asked to lead that effort outside of the US um, and internationalize it. And through that work, I got to work with the likes of Spotify, Supercell, King. We got the BBC to stream all of the Olympic content onto Facebook directly, it was really four of the best years of my career, just seeing this this company grow from when I joined, I must have been less than a thousand employees worldwide. Maybe we had hit 200 million users, mostly still in the US. In Europe, we, there were still a number of competitors in different countries. Uh, Studi was beating us. Uh, there was one in Spain. There was one in Netherlands. There was a couple in Russia. So we were not yet and far from being the leading social network in the world. And yet, obviously, the, the results of what Facebook has become now uh, speak for themselves. And uh, my old team is now, I would assume, 40 or 50 people around the world. So it was it was a great ride. But what I also realized is that there's these fantastic companies being built in Europe where the talent was was there, the ambition was there, but the number of funding options to help them scale up was literally a fraction of what you had in the Valley. And I decided to uh, join the other side of the table and t- turn my angel investment activities into a full-time venture capital fund, which along with my partner Eric who was based in New York, we started out in 2013 started investing in 2014 and now we have uh, 25 portfolio companies between North America and Western Europe
1: that's a pretty impressive uh, resume you just walked us through you've had success helping Facebook Microsoft and Google expand internationally you've also helped with a with a startup in a pre IPO situation, help them help MicroStrategy to to grow and go public. So some stunning credentials there. If if you were mentoring a a technology company founder looking to scale globally, what pieces of advice would you give him or
0: her? We actually created an organization called H two that seeks to do exactly that. It's um it's a professional network for executive level. Uh, employees of mainly technology companies whose role it is to scale businesses into new territories. It started by by, by the former head of Asia for AdMob, along with a former head of uh, internationalization for LinkedIn in, in the Valley, and then me and the former head of Amia for LinkedIn in London, and now it's in Berlin, it's in uh, India, it's in Hong Kong. And the whole point of that that network was we all faced similar challenges as we are no, trying to find the right team, trying to understand how to do partnerships in different languages and different territories, trying to figure out the ecosystems of entrepreneurs, uh, developers and investors. And we figured that getting together uh, under that umbrella was a right way to share those news. And by the way, be able to do deals with each other as well. Uh, So for anybody who might be in that role, I highly recommend uh, h2.co. Check it out. There's probably a, um, a chapter close to you. But the tactical advice I, I would give them is don't assume that it's a cookie-cutter model. What worked in France is not going to work in Germany. What works in Germany is definitely not going to work necessarily in India. And so you have to have this, this acceptance of local nuance. And with the Facebook example, it was really interesting because when Facebook internationalized, it, it actually empowered its users to translate the site into their language. So in the case of Turkey, the Turkish users of Facebook turned uh, Facebook from English to Turkish in 24 hours, I believe. But it actually created this notion for them, Facebook was now a Turkish product. They had made it into a Turkish product. And there was this very much sense of, 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 um, of ownership. So finding these, these kind of growth hacks that allow you to turn your product into a local product that people locally embrace rather than this app that's being mandated upon with either a very Western uh, perception of how users will interact. In the flip side, if you think about WeChat, WeChat is a product that most of us in the West just are uncomfortable using. It's got so many bells and whistles going on at the same time. It it cannot be appropriately accepted just the way that we use um, apps, which is very different from how the Chinese use apps. And and so Tencent made a very specific example that they were not going to go thin it out and make it a kind of vanilla product that would work everywhere. They were going to go deep in China with this very deep stack of applications and transactional commerce. Uh, that worked for China and now works in Southeast Asia, but it's unlikely to ever work in the West. So there's very specific product decisions that you also need to make about how you take those products international.
1: That uh, localization approach that you just summarized, does that work equally well with uh, enterprise or is it really more of a B2C strategy?
0: I'm trying to think about it, our enterprise software companies and how how to take it to market. There is a model that I actually really like for enterprise sales, which is to find local value added resellers. And we did it when I was at MicroStrategy, and now we're doing it with a couple of portfolio companies. People who know how to sell because they have the networks and the connections locally, they become your exclusive reseller in this or that geography. They localize your content, they localize your case studies, and they go build local case studies. And in return, you give them a percentage of the sale. It's a much faster way to go to market in things like Japan or Brazil than you ever trying to set up a sales team from scratch. And by the way, you can unwind that agreement when you're ready and you can just set up your local sales office. But I do think that not enough people think about channel partnerships as a way to go international on the enterprise side.
1: So channel's the way to go or is certainly a way to go in in certain markets. Is a, a U.S. firm entering Europe, would you recommend the same approach or would you recommend in that situation hiring local talent directly?
0: In the case of an um, of, uh, American company coming into here, right, the m- typical model has been England as the first outpost or Ireland just because of the language and, and the customer base and there's not, not as much need to localize. And then from here, scaling out local operations in different countries. But even from England, you can still go find a value-added reseller to help you do market penetration in, let's say, Germany. Another model is starting with multinational organizations. If you're selling to large enterprises, so starting with, let's say, Deloitte US. And then Deloitte U.S. brings you to Deloitte U.K., and Deloitte U.K. takes you to Deloitte, Germany. So you have a, a customer expansion that actually also drives your market expansion, which is another another way I've seen a couple companies seek to internationalize. And really, you're being internationalized based on demand and kind of guaranteed revenue rather than having to burn for X amount of time while you figure out the local market.
1: Yeah, that makes sense, leveraging the scale, the international offices and branches of uh, of your client. Now, previously... You've mentioned to me your views on ensuring the right product market fit. So what are the key criteria for any early stage technology venture that's having a bit of a struggle with product
0: market fit? Should we start with consumer or enterprise? I think it's a bit different strategies. Go with enterprise. And actually, literally, we're going through this right now with a number of portfolio companies, right? You you whiteboard the product, you think it's uh, the holy grail, you take it to market, and uh, and then kind of the, the rollouts there materialize. And, and so when we're evaluating companies, I like to see the product being some sort of proof of concept. Actually, I really like it when the product's being co-developed with a potential client, because in a way, ideally, they're subsidizing the development. You're getting feature feedback along the way rather than you and your engineers in a, in a room with a whiteboard assuming what the customer wants. And this is actually where the critical piece of what some call the founder market fit comes in. Do you as a founder have an understanding of the pain you're trying to solve because you were actually on that side of the table before? And you roll out a product that actually is rich enough in features that somebody is willing to pull out their credit card for. And I think that's actually like the, 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 that first client is such a validation point. The question then is, can you replicate that success without one client with two, three, four more? And for us, we invest you know, $1 to $5 million. We probably wanted to see that first client, uh, at least in, in the initial deployment phase, with the pipeline of others be- behind it. Because it means that actually by putting in a significant amount of money, you can start scaling out a sales team, building out a broader pipeline, rolling it out. Where it falls short sometimes is, is two things. One is, and this is actually interesting, it's, it sometimes happens to very technical founders that try to over-engineer the product. You launch something that's too feature-rich. And by the time they figure out how to use it, they really only wanted to start with 10% of the features. So it's, it's a, in a way, too clunky. And the second is mispricing it, that not knowing what the value generation is going to be, both pricing it too high, in which people just refuse to buy it, and then you have to kind of come down, or pricing it too low, at which point it's going to be very hard for you to double the price um, if that's what the, right, what the market would absorb. And those are, I mean, that, that's where you kind of need customer feedback through a development cycle, trying to get a pipeline... Of friendlies that actually uh, give you the guidance on the value creation and therefore the price associated with that value creation for the customers. If you're launching a truly innovative
1: technology, something that's a bit of a breakthrough in enterprise software, enterprise SaaS, how do you get the feedback from the customers to help you pitch the price right?
0: You might have reinvented... No the wheel and might have a fantastic product, but you're still going to get categorized into a specific category of SaaS type tools and users. So you can, you can make some assumptions about, you know, are you, is it, if you're helping automate a process, how much money are you saving them and therefore what percentage of that should you get? If you're helping uh, accelerate transactions or mine data that creates value by helping you identify customers or market customers better, you might make some assumptions about how valuable that is. But you can then also look at analogous tools, right? If you're working in something around HR tech, you can look at other HR offerings and see, let's say, how Workday is priced on a per seed basis. And that gives you at least a comp in the market as to what the value is for something analogous to you. Where it starts getting, or it's been hard in the last couple of years, is when, let's say, some of these machine learning powered SaaS offerings are being brought to market, and then they're still unproven, there is no comp. Where do you start on the pricing then? And I think you have to start with what might be your dumber analogous product, and then over time increase it because you feel that that machine learning algorithm might actually be bringing much more value than something else. But I think you're right. I think it actually is a challenge when you're actually creating a new category. HR tech would have been the, the, the example the before Workday, like HR tech was a pretty unsexy space. And so, how did you actually go sell to the HR person or to the training, the head of training? You know, I think sales and uh, the CMO's office have always been flush with cash. Some of these more operational functions were not typically the people buying tech.
1: So within your portfolio, if you had a CEO or had a product who was struggling with the pricing, there wasn't a, a real analogous uh, product or category that he could uh, reference. Would you recommend pricing to the lower? And, and then as market acceptance develops and as you start adding more features in and understanding the value start hiking the prices up as you go along
0: then the way I would do it is is I would go to I would prioritize the logo over the revenue right so you go you, you try to find a logo that will be a validator and I would even give it away for free for let's say for a year if in return i could tell others that xyz is using it because then, you, you, in a way, mentally, you can think about the fact that you're pricing it super low or actually giving it away as a marketing cost to create a market for your product. And hopefully, along the way, they validate the, the value you're creating for them, and that gives you some some signals on how you might price it. There's like a, a, a meme that goes around Twitter all the time about, you know, go ask your next customer for twice what you just, you just ask your previous customer and see if that flies. And if it flies, that's great. And try it again the next time until you actually somebody says no. Nice one. You also mentioned
1: when we last spoke, and I'm intrigued by this, that regulation, rather than simply being a challenge to overcome, is actually a huge opportunity for startups to create differentiators, and barriers to entry. So can you provide some suggestions on how early stage CEOs and sales and product leaders can exploit this?
0: Uh, yeah, so, so we, we backed um, a number of companies that are, are regulated, both fintech and one that actually is a, a regulated medical prescription management product. And you know some people are scared away by regulation because it takes a lot of time, a lot of paperwork. You're filling out forms and meeting with FCA committees rather than building products. But by the way, by the time you get that license, whoever wants to go and come compete with you has to go through that same process you just went to. So it does give you a time to market advantage. Secondly, it it also gives you a, a validation with your customers. So if you are actually regulated by the FCA, that does give you an imprint of Gravitas, which if the FCA was willing to reg- give you a 10 percent company a license, you have to be legit. So I'm willing to work with you. Or I might say, I'm not willing to work with you until you have that. The other area where I think regulation is going to be really interesting, especially for the European ecosystem is GDPR, which the the data protection regulation that comes into force in May, uh, in which European companies, my European portfolio companies, are, are all definitely thinking about it. And I've been surprised about how few of the US companies in my portfolio and others that we've talked to are. Their assumption is it's just this European thing. It doesn't affect us, but it does affect them if they have even a single European citizen in their database and the European citizen comes back to Europe and asks for his or her data back. Because at that point, they legally have, technically have to comply with GDPR. And the, where this gets hard is if you're not architected in a way to go in and extract and find all the information about that user and delete it and send it back to them, you have to go do it manually. It becomes quite cost prohibitive. So this, I think GDPR is going to force European companies to think about this notion of privacy by design, baking in the ability for a user to control their data within your platform and for you to be able to extract it, clean it much more efficiently. And that, as we go into a world where users are becoming more aware and more demanding of control of their data, is a competitive advantage because those that do it from the beginning and bake it in from the beginning are going to be much more nimble than those that have to go back and kind of retrofit it later on. Um, It could actually be a big shakeup in May 2018, those who
1: are taking advantage of GDPR and those who are falling foul of it.
0: Yeah, and we still and the problem is we still don't know exactly what it means or how it's going to be implemented. But I think it's a it's a mental shift about how you architect your your tech stack to enable something like GDPR. Uh, and there's a great TechCrunch article that talked about the, the founders should make the assumption that GDPR becomes the golden standard worldwide because enough the enough businesses will do business with uh, European customers and in Europe. Clearly, one of the
1: things that you do that you excel in perhaps is coaching, mentoring the teams within your portfolio and within your wider network. But who are the people you turn to for advice? Who are some of the mentors who've helped
0: you develop your ideas and your approach? Hmm, interesting question. Um, it's funny. When I first started um, in, in venture capital, you know, there's this adage that it's a cottage industry, that it's an apprenticeship. And that you really don't know if you're good at it until 10 years later, because you don't know if what you invested in today actually has an exit that returns the fund until seven to eight years later. I was fortunate enough to have um, the mentorship of a couple of partners at, at existing funds. Uh, people had been in, in the industry for 20 plus years. They reviewed my initial pitch deck. Um, actually, one of them even gave me a free office space for six months. Uh, Kevin Camoli at Excel, who I, I'm still very thankful for, uh, for thankful too. And, and, and they actually also gave me some good guidance about things that I wouldn't have known about or thought about. Um, there's this thing called recycling and venture capital in which you're able to take the money. If you sell a company early, you can take the money and actually reinvest it into other companies. It is, uh, from academic research, a single largest driver of VC outperformance because you can put more money at work into the good companies. And it's not something I would have known about if they hadn't flagged it to me, which then allowed us to go ask our investors to allow us to recycle or reserve ratios, how much money do you allocate to a business after the initial check? And and how do you think about adjusting that ratio over time? And how do you actually think about putting your money behind the winners? Because this is a power law business, meaning that in a portfolio of let's say 10 businesses, it's gonna be one that's actually gonna drive the the significant return of the whole fund. And and, and, And you need to understand that because that will affect how you back that winner through uh, as long as you can to maintain your ownership. And these were things that coming into kind of venture capital, uh, I could have read the books, but honestly I wouldn't really have known until you've gone through the pain a couple of times. So I was extremely thankful to them. There's a number of other VCs that are very, very public in their blogging Uh, Mark Suster at upfront uh, Fred Wilson at USV. They share a lot of these insights pretty publicly and that's I think any aspiring emerging manager in venture capital should consume their uh, their blogs ferociously, and there's a book by Brad Feld, which I actually I often recommend to uh, to my entrepreneurs as well, uh, which is I think it's called Venture Rules, which is all about the term sheet and how to actually understand what's inter- what the entrepreneur might want and what the VC might want and why those might be in conflict sometimes. Um, and it's it's a it's a great quick read to under- to understand um, how important the term sheet will be for both the good and the bad outcomes down the road
1: a treasure trove of sources there on on advice for uh, anyone developing their their career as a, a as a VC uh, if you weren't a VC
0: what other profession would you love to try i get asked this fairly frequently and it's um i'd be doing exa- let's say i had all the money in the world and um you know my kids and my kids kids and my kids 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 were fine uh, i'd probably still be doing what i'm doing now it just probably would be in a different structure i'd right? be maybe a bit of my own money it's, um, and I might be taking some maybe crazier bets in, in some French technologies. Uh, this job is probably the most intellectually stimulated, stimulating thing I could do. You have to be learning about new technologies, new business models every single day. And what you learn today is going to be obsolete in three years. So, you know, five, four years ago when we got started, blockchain was starting, but it wasn't as crazy as it is today. Um You know, the notion of actually a VCs backing nanosatellite companies that were putting satellites in space to take pictures of the earth, sounded far-fetched. The notion of something uh, as crazy as asteroid mining uh, would literally have sounded out of science fiction, but this will happen in, in, in our lifetime. so it's it's um the ability to literally think about all these hypotheticals of where the world is going. And to start making an investment thesis around, you know, this is where the world's going. When do I get in? When do I don't? Where do I get in? Hardware, software, analytics. Where's the value going to be created? And you do that over and over and over every single day. And by the way, you get to meet people who are experts in each of those micro fields because they're, they're applying their background, their knowledge to build something in that space. And if you're lucky enough, you get to back one of them and, and, and learn from them throughout the ride so i don't know what other job i would want to do that wouldn't be something similar to what i'm doing today well, it's really great to hear
1: that you're uh, you're so motivated and uh, satisfied of every aspect of your your career your profession that's uh, that's lovely i'm just picking up on your your comment about uh, technology specifically blockchain so blockchain 5 years ago was nascent was just picking up and now it's uh, really accelerating What's today's equivalent of blockchain from five years ago? So what's the nascent technology that you're really excited about that come 2022, 2023 is going to be in in all the all the headlines, or at least within all the tech sector headlines?
0: It's interesting because it's probably one that I can't invest in just because it's not my area of expertise, but I'm I'm fascinated. I am convinced that we are entering this era of Some people call it wetware, some people call it biology as a platform, but applying computational techniques to biology, being able to decode uh, through genomics and then being able to manipulate the genome and and just the kind of societal impact that could have uh, everything from illnesses to nutrition levels to to, um, uh, society at large. And it's and actually fascinating. Uh, somebody told me the other day the hottest job, the hottest profile to be hired into a top tier VC firm in the Valley right now is a PhD in computational biology. Somebody who understands uh, kind of effectively how to build the tech on top of the, the, the biology to then figure out how to extract value from what we call software in this world of of, uh, of biology. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm very quite bullish on it. I mean, CRISPR provides itself is fascinating. Unfortunately, I'm a failed pre-med student, so I, I, there's a steep <laughs> learning curve for me to get comfortable in investing in that world. Another one that's fascinating, and I'm actually, I think, I don't think, yeah, it's, it's maybe three to five years out, um, is the um, unbundling or distribution of the electrical grid. Which, you know, right now, a nuclear plant or hydro um, power plant is generating electricity, which went into the grid, which is lighting up the light in your office and mine. And we buy it from some utility that probably gouges on prices. That is now changing, where the consumer is becoming a producer through solar panels and batteries, and your electrical company is going from annoying utility to trusted financial advisor telling you when to buy and when to sell. And the the way in which the grid might change, and the way in which um, energy production might get massively distributed, makes for really interesting opportunities around the way you analyze um, that data to create markets, the way you actually Uh, have price transparency, uh, the way you even can think about peer-to-peer. So me selling energy directly to you on the spot and and some intelligent agent will have to be in the middle making that happen. And Europe's actually got some interesting initiatives around that. Germany is pretty liberal in their access to the grid. So it's uh, it's a space I'm learning more and more about and getting pretty excited about because I think the long-term effect of that will be more renewable energy being generated, which actually will lead to obviously hopefully less carbon consumption and therefore hopefully a better impact on our planet. Given me a couple of really interesting
1: ideas for me to uh, show my son, who's just, uh, just looking at his university options and those two themes, biology as a platform and, the uh, unbundling of the electricity grid, a couple of, uh, a couple of areas that I might suggest he, he looks at for his, uh, for his degree to, uh, to get off to a flying star in three, four, five years' time when he moves into uh, into the world of tech and business. So uh, indirectly, some great career advice for my son. So thank you for that question. <laughs> Just wrapping up, what are your goals for White Star Capital in 2018 and
0: beyond? I think it's it, the, the goals are fairly simple, right? Finding or obtaining the right to back projects um, and founders that we feel will be transformational in whatever they're trying to build and have a international ambition in which we can actually be of assistance because we're between London, New York, um, Montreal, and Paris with a venture partner in Asia, our role and what I think we're good at is to help the companies that are, have launched in a country, have proven product market fit in a country to go international. So we have the, the people, the team is made up of people like me that have actually operationally scaled out businesses. On a global basis Uh, like the youngest member of our team ed is actually was the former international growth manager for tinder employee number 12 of tinder while he's still at school and that so that carries throughout the team where we think we can bring that applied experience to help them out secondly the geographic presence that we have means we can help you soft land into the us or canada or or japan and thirdly this i would call it the partnership model where we we're fairly hands-on when we invest you know, if you want us to help you f- figure out how to do your financial model, there's a team member that will do that. If you want to go whiteboard with me about growth ideas to actually get consumer adoption, I'll happily do that. And our job is to kind of push you on the way, get you to the next round or next stage, and find complementary partners to take you from, let's say, Series B to Series C, and then find a complementary partner to take you from Series C to Series D. So my uh, my desire for 2018 is to be given the chance to back those projects that in a way move me uh, on, a, on a personal level, uh, but that they allow us to partner with them to go to that next stage. Sounds like you've got a very, really clear vision for the business over the
1: next 12 months and beyond and some great uh, uh, companies emerging in your portfolio. So uh, really exciting times for White Star and uh, and the whole portfolio. Christian, thank you so much for joining me today. Lovely insights for uh, budding entrepreneurs and also for budding VCs, actually. And I'm sure you'll have uh, inspired uh, a number of listeners, um, including my uh, my son, when he decides to uh, listen into this podcast.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much, Gary. Appreciate the time and the invitation. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.